0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour on Disrupt TV. Our show is a weekly show where we learn from the best and brightest executives um, discussing leadership, business, technology, innovation, and industry trends. Uh, We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest questions on Twitter using Hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, contributed to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet, and one of the coolest people you can follow on Twitter to learn about the future of business and technology at R-W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. I'm joined here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. More importantly, one of the top CIO, CMO, follows on Twitter. Every tweet is insightful and also an author himself. But hey, we get awesome folks here, and today is really about... Uh, Pioneers, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll I never to do intros, but uh, I'm really excited, especially on a hot and salient topic that could cost you 4% of your revenue. So anyways, <laughs> go ahead.
0: Yes, we're delighted to have Jeff Jonas, founder and CEO of Sensing, as our first guest. We're talking about a company that's using a real, for, uh, first, for the first time, real-time AI for uh, Entity Resolution, and we'll learn more about, Jeff, what that means. He is an acclaimed data scientist, and his superpower is Big Data Whisperer, and we're going to (laughs) learn about that. Jeff's at the forefront of solving some of the world's most complex business and big data problems for governments and companies. He's a former IBM fellow leading the, uh, the creation of the Entity Resolution System, which was at the core of the new company. National Geographic recognized Jeff as the wizard of big data. And today, he's got such great bio. I had to cut it in half, so we only have 20 minutes. And today, <laughs> numerous, organizations, yeah, yeah. numerous organizations rely on Jeff's uh, ability to really extract useful intelligence from the tsunami of data, which all of us business leaders are, are challenged with. Uh, a three-time entrepreneur, he sold his first company to IBM in 2005. His latest company sends in Jeff's first focus on solving Critical Missing Link of General Data Protection Regulations to GDPR, which is what Ray was alluding to at the beginning. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Jonas, J-E-F-F-J-O-N-A-S. Welcome, Jeff, to Disrupt TV.
1: Howdy. Hey, welcome. This is awesome. I think the last time we were chatting, we were like in Vegas. I know what stays in Vegas, supposedly stays in Vegas, but we were in Vegas chatting about bad guys, chatting about a whole bunch of stuff. Let's start there where we left off, talking about your Vegas background and, you know, who are the bad guys, so.
2: You know, in in the early 90s, I moved my company, SRD, to Vegas, and we started building these systems for the casinos, and we built all kinds of systems for them. But the one kinds of systems that we were building for them that were maybe the most interesting were ones to catch clever bad guys, and one of those systems uh, was you where we built was used to help bring down the MIT card count team, and they're not that bad; they're just clever.
0: Oh. Yeah, there's a movie about that, right?
2: Yeah, the, the 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 book's actually more accurate. The the movie was a little
1: less accurate okay <laughs> well you know I, I i know one of those guys um he he, he started a company in, in san francisco and he's telling about how they got caught and i don't know if they really knew how they got caught <laughs>
2: it's not in the book uh some of the stuff that we were doing to make uh they were kind of thinking it was the facial recognition which we implemented in 96 uh but that was not true at all no, but we built this other system for the casinos Uh, that was known as Nora, non-obvious relationship awareness. And that was trying to figure out who is who across all their systems. And they had, you know, a variety of different watch lists. Some of them are regulatory compliance watch lists. If you do business with them, you lose your gaming license. So they're really serious about seeing if those people were checking into the hotel, or their vendors
1: or applying for jobs or (laughs) he's really you're really talking about large withdrawal from Riggs National (laughs) Bank Hmm, wonder about that one (laughs) with a little sub account to HSBC (laughs) and this little account in Morocco yeah that must be real It just came off the plane (laughs) approved
0: Approved, (laughs) tell us us a little bit about your company tell us about this first real-time AI for identity resolution and its roots which I believe came from work that was done in a very significant project at IBM.
2: Yeah, what happened is IBM bought that, uh, my company, SRD, because of the Nora technology in 2005. And in 2009, yeah, in 2009, IBM just looked at me one day and said, if you have a big idea, we'd fund it. And I thought to myself, if you could start over, if I could take the work I've been doing and kind of go, from a, go to a green field, what would be possible? And so I drummed something up and said, How about I build you this? And they're like, wow, you'd build that for us. My VC friends uh, who funded the last company were like, why didn't you just quit and build it for us? (laughs) I'm trying to be useful now. I'm trying to just be useful. So that technology, I started on this project. It was a skunkworks activity. It was codenamed G2. And it was really about entity resolution, figuring out who's who, but doing it in a way that uh, doesn't need experts anymore. No more tuning and training. It's really been a challenge for companies to find when identities are the same, even if they're described differently, especially if there's deceit. Like you're catching bad guys. Bad guys don't use the same name, address, date of birth, and passport number. Man, only the idiots do that. (laughs) They run out of gas on the way to the operation. They take care of themselves. (laughs) Anyway, that project grew up. And in uh, 2016, I talked IBM into a -a one-of-a-kind partnership spin-out. Uh, and, you know, we just collaborated around that. And uh, August of 2016, Sensing was formed. Mm-hmm. And uh, It's exciting. And we're, you know, we're set to democratize entity resolution. It's today if people need technology like this, they're, they're spending a million bucks. And uh, you need a whole bunch of experts. And um, we're just trying to make it so easy. Everybody in the world can have
1: access to it. You know, what's really interesting is that you decided to take up ER for GDPR compliance as, as your first use case. I know there's a lot of different use cases that are out there, but, but why did you choose GDPR? Was it, was it really you know the, the issue of tolerance for you know, dirty data? Was it something else? I mean, like you guys are doing something really cool uh, to get to ER and GDPR, but, but why GDPR? You guys have done so many other places.
2: Well, here's the thing is I was a really late bloomer to privacy. Like I didn't even know what the word meant in the, the 90s. <laughs> Once I figured out what it meant and the importance, I, I became kind of uh, focused on something called privacy by design. So when I started over in 2009 on any resolution, I, I just started baking privacy by design into what I was doing. Nice. And yeah, we're, we really put a lot of work into that. I dreamt up you know, seven things that I thought one could do that are privacy related, and then we baked those in from the very beginning on day one, and then when we first announced the G2 technology, it was on International Privacy Day, on the stage uh-huh. of Dan and who is the creator of Privacy by Design. So G2 was really a technology born with privacy and announced on International Privacy Day. So here comes January of this this year, it's International Privacy Day. It's, you know, it's on the anniversary day of when G2 was born, and I just thought, how fitting would it be to just make that the first time, we talk about the product publicly and make it available commercially. And we are we're, we're applying it in a way that really solves a complicated problem for people trying to implement GDPR, which I'll tell you in a nutshell. It's this, is if you're a data subject and you say, what do you know about me? Companies aren't going to be able to find it. They have 50 databases or 2,000 databases. They're not going to remember to search for Elizabeth and Liz and Beth. Right. And, and so it's like, you know, If you're trying to look for data about somebody in a company, it's kind of like going to a library without a card catalog. You're just roaming the floors. You're roaming the halls. You're looking for books. You're going to miss them. And so with G2 and our our entity resolution stuff, we're just making it, we create a card catalog. We create a central index that points people back to the records in the enterprise so they can actually find them instantly and save save a lot of time.
0: I have two questions. Uh, One, should we anticipate a big announcement? From you on May 25, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, I believe, the first day that the uh, GDPR goes into effect. And second, uh, what, what, how many companies are 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 ready, are compliant, based on your experience guiding and consulting and implementing this solution across all different size businesses?
2: You know, we did a we did a survey in uh, in Europe in the large five large the five largest economies in January. Over a thousand companies over sixty, well, 68% uh, basically said they don't feel like they are ready. So, you know, and I think the regulators, we've been talking to the regulators, they're gonna be a little more patient in the early days and it'll be kind of repeat offenses that start driving up those, those fines. So organizations are gonna have to try to figure that out quickly. And the first thing that I think the first thing they're gonna discover that's gonna shock them, we call it the missing link, is they're gonna find out how damn hard it is to actually find the data. Yeah. They, they are, they are going to really struggle with that.
1: It is, and, and, and I think a lot of the cases, especially when we're talking about GDPR, I mean, I don't think all the use cases have been imagined, right? The, the regulators, from what we understand as well, is you know, they're just kind of shooting in the dark to set up some kind of framework, hoping that you know, not only the technology would catch up or, or people would actually design it and put, as you're putting privacy by design, into those systems. So, so when you think about this, like you know, where, do, where do people start? Right, you know, because you know entity resolution, it also requires some time for people to actually get it to to work properly.
2: Well, that's kind of the biggest thing that we've changed. It doesn't actually take. We've collapsed the time out of that. Uh, We've created plug and play connectors. So if you have data, I mean, my my company Sensing, just coming out of stealth, we have data uh, about you know with PII in thirteen systems. We have it in WordPress. We have it in Salesforce. We have it in um, Stripe. We have it in Zendesk. It just it goes on and on. We have it in, uh, you know, blitz, Mailchimp. So we just made plug-and-play connectors. So now people just download, they just export a CSV from each of those, and then push load. No mapping. It's just done. It's, it's, it's I mean, really, people. I literally pulled all my own company's data together and created single subject search in under an hour.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's unheard of.
1: So, wow. so if you can do that, let me ask you the other question. You actually are sitting in a position to potentially actually, you know, build decentralized identity if people want to do it. You can invert it the other way.
2: Build decentralized? What do you mean by that? Build. What decentralized. I,
1: mean, I think you could actually potentially provide uh, the ability for people to create identity and um, decentralize how that access
2: Oh, yeah. OK. So here's a very important point is we actually don't have any data. We don't host it. We're not a, like a, a, we're not SaaS SAS. We are SaaS like it's subscription software. We, we send it to people and then they implement it on their cloud or on their okay. on prem.
1: But you can do the match and link on the fly.
2: Yeah, but you uh, we wouldn't do that. Somebody else would. Somebody ah, you know, we have got it that are, that are looking at using our technology to allow consumers to take control of their identity got it so they determine who gets access to it much okay. inspired maybe by gdpr like but we wouldn't do that i mean we literally i mean we want to be like you know the smartest new resolution for everyone everywhere which is a democratization statement and we're trying to make it so easy no one calls but everyone loves us <laughs> These are our aspirations, you know?
1: (laughs) No, no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant.
0: Jeff, uh, you know, years of experience analyzing data about, let's say, bad guys and catching them, identifying them. What are some general principles you can share that maybe a chief security officer, chief information, or any uh, line of business leader can think about in terms of principles about bad guys?
2: You know, there turns out to be one particular trade craft that bad guys use, every genre of bad guy, from, from card counters, which they're not bad guys, they're just clever, all the way up, you know, to uh, terrorists and really sophisticated insiders, uh, insider threats is, I call it channel separation. Nobody uses their same name, uh, date of birth, address, and credit card when they go buy a bunch of diesel fuel, buy a bunch of fertilizer, rent a truck, they separate those channels. By the way, you and I do this too. If you've ever emailed somebody a spreadsheet that's encrypted and then called them with a password, ah, that's channel separation. That's the, that's the single common thing that everybody does. And if you can't figure out that Bill is William and William is also using this fake identity, Frank, and you, can't, you don't realize that's actually one person, you can't catch the clever one. And that's really the problem that a lot of organizations are having. And whether it's law enforcement, banking, insurance, intelligence if you can't figure out who's who and 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 consolidate those channels you don't get the clue
0: when did you realize that separation and and then
2: late way too late way too late when i was up when when did i realize that (laughs) decades is embarrassingly late now i 20 years after i was on the chase of, of catching bad guys uh did i start Thinking about this and realizing that it was just, the, it, it's it's everywhere. It's not being able to figure out who's who prevents organizations from really understanding the context, whether it's risk or opportunity. By the way, you know, in marketing, it's called omni. You know, it feels like omni-channel view. <laughs>
1: hey, it's the 360-degree view of the uh, customer. Yeah. <laughs> So we we're just talking about that at the uh, CRM Evolution conference, uh, you know, a, a few days back. But but hey, this is this is interesting, right? When we think about privacy, privacy by design, you know, you now have ability to do ER, ER on the fly as a tool for folks to figure out what's going on. You don't hold any of the data, which means you're not liable for any of this, you know, issue. Um, you give them the tools to figure out how to solve the problem on their own, which is pretty pretty powerful on their own, pretty far in its own right. Um, uh, what other applications will you go on, be it besides GDPR? Because there's, to me, there's like at least a million other possibilities you can go. You you focus then <laughs> on a really good use case. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think's next?
2: You know, uh, a ba- generally we're going to have an addition called Bad Guy Hunting, and people will use that for insider threat, financial fraud, any money laundering, healthcare fraud, and things like that. Uh, then we'll have a, uh, a marketing 360, customer 360, that allows you to do next best action and uh, deduplicate your marketing lists we're going to allow the world to finally find the dupes in their marketing files and CRM yep. just instant and so affordable. No one will bat an eye. I mean, wow.
1: No, there was a company way back, which you probably know as well called Purisma that was starting, uh, doing the ER part and initiate that IBM acquired over time was doing some ER, but, yeah. uh, Applying the AI pieces, I, I think, is, is, the, is the smart part. Is there anything different in the algorithms that you're choosing or using that allows you to do this um, at scale, which was different than before? Because to track down folks that might not seem at first related to each other, I mean, that, that's not an easy task. Is, is it a black box?
2: We, you know, we made it a self-tuning and self-correcting. So as it's loading data, what's unique about it, it's, and it's a really, you know, some would say, well, that's machine learning because it's getting smarter as it observes more data. But it's real time, so it's not, you know, uh, neural net. It's what's happening is when it discovers something new. For example, uh, let's say it, it, uh, names and phone numbers is a pretty good way to think about people being similar. But eventually, you run across a phone number. This may be Bank of America's main line.
0: Right. right.
2: Well, everybody named Mark Smith with that phone number is not the same. The moment it discovers that in real time, it goes backwards and fixes all the prior assertions. So this thing about using new observations to reverse earlier assertions, it's like you've seen 100 million records and you have to say, now that I learned this, you know who is it? And then you have to ask yourself, now that I know that, had I known that in the beginning over those 100 million decisions I've made, would I have made any of those decisions differently? Doing that in real time is non-trivial. And it's what is probably one of the most unique parts about what we're doing.
1: But without a neural net, yeah, oddly. <laughs> <laughs> right? Without a neural net, and you're not even storing that data. So it's, it's, it's learning to learn um, without keeping the data, which is pretty impressive.
2: Well, it, it doesn't. No, it keeps the data, but it keeps the data local to wherever somebody's running it. It's building an index in its, in its tank. Right. In its belly. It has a database. It's transactional. But the database's purpose is not to have all of the data, but it's really just to create the card catalog. And what yes. it's doing is it's like rubber banding library cards together. If oh yeah, oh yeah, they're not <laughs> stapling them because it, it, it can change its mind fast.
0: Does it take just one mismatch marker to be tagged as a fraudulent identity, or do you score the likelihood of being a real bad guy by a number of mismatches?
2: You know. Time? What we used to do is we used to build scoring engines on the end of entity resolution, yeah. and you'd score it for good news or bad news. You know, you, should right. you sell them something, or yeah. should you shoot them with a laser from space? That's a scoring <laughs> algorithm. But we're not doing that now. Like one of the maybe biggest changes between all the versions of bad, all the versions of earlier, earlier versions of me, bad Jeff now, uh, was I would build, the, I would spend this time on all these end-to-end processes, ETL, you know, syncing data, Entity Resolve then (laughs) scoring it, then visualizing it, then case management systems, whole systems. And when we spun out of IBM, I just thought to myself, what makes us special? And it's making entity resolution really easy for everyone. And I went, we're just going to do that. So people behind our processes connect. You know, what we're really doing is we take a complicated task for programmers and make it easy. You know, that's like Stripe. Stripe's like that. You want to add credit cards to your website? I added it in 30 minutes. I don't even code anymore.
1: I got connected in under 30 minutes. I got some REST APIs, boom, security (laughs) module, boom, SSL in here, boom.
0: So it's easy to use, adoption, speed. That's, That's essentially what ultimately the user experience for folks responsible for making sure it's secure environment.
1: We are live here with multiple triathlon athlete and security geek, Jeff Jonas. You can follow him at Jeff Jonas. Um, he's got his new company, Sensing. We're talking about GDPR at scale, at AI scale, and more importantly, an awesome dude. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. You can follow great. Jeff here and uh, definitely catch up on what he's up to. And, you know, when it comes to May 25th, be careful. <laughs> thanks a lot, man. Hey, that's great. To we got to right. catch up.
2: So.
0: Yeah, adios.
2: Fantastic. Dude, awesome.
0: Uh, we, we could have talked to Jeff for a while. Uh, <laughs> sure, I was, I was ho- hoping we could get some use cases, so we got to get Jeff back uh, online to find out, again, some of the tangible benefits. Um, but we're going to extend the conversation and talk to um, Ajay Aurora, CEO and co-founder of Vera. As founder of Vera, Ajay is building the next great security company, For a world without borders, and that's something we all recognize. Ajay is a serial entrepreneur, over 20 years of experience in enterprise software. Most recently, he co-founded Rapsphere, a cutting-edge mobile security company, which was acquired by AppSense in 2012. He also served as vice president of products and services Mashery, acquired by Intel, where Ajay built built out an all-product engineering and SaaS cloud operations. He's another great follow on Twitter at A-J-A-Y-A-R-O-R-A. Welcome, Ajay, to uh, Disrupt TV. Hey,
1: thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks. Awesome background. You're at uh, live at one of the most prestigious institutions in America. Where are you?
3: <laughs> that's right. I'm at. Uh, happen to be at Caltech doing some uh, college visits with my son. So that's why you see all the mahogany and everything behind me. But. Uh, Uh, It's pretty shishy
1: here, but uh, excited to be here. We
3: thought it was your living
1: room. We thought it was your living room the back of your house. It's like alumni house at Caltech. (laughs) I know. Absolutely. I know. Well, hey, Uh, you know, hot on the presses, Facebook, Zuck on trial, GDPR, privacy, right? There's a call out there to say, look, we got to make GDPR at some level baseline standard and companies have to follow suit. What's your take on it? Since we're going to talk big on on where, where this is going,
0: and tell us about Vera as well.
1: While while you while you yeah yeah, no, so I'm happy to do both, right? So
3: it's uh, incredible timing. Uh, what's been going on with um, with Facebook and with the impending GDPR and uh, just coming up in in about a month or so. But I think it's really uh, been a catalyst. What what you saw in the last week in testimony for Mark Zuckerberg in front of the House and, and the Senate. Bring the whole concept of, of data privacy um, back, in the, back in the middle of just the, the, the general conversation that's happening, uh, not only in the EU anymore, but uh, right here within within the states as well. So this is clearly a global uh, issue. Um, the EU is uh, with GDPR has made it a global issue, but uh, when you see uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg sitting there in front of the Senate ask, answering questions, you know that uh, that's it's now expanded well beyond that. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a very interesting time to be around, and it's, I think it's only a matter of time now that uh, we have these GDPR uh, type of regulations uh, uh, within the United States as well um, for, for privacy here. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just uh, incredible the coincidence uh, and, and the timing there. From the standpoint of, uh, of Vero, which I can talk about quickly too, is uh, we are a uh, data security and data privacy company that was founded uh, about four and a half years ago And our whole notion was to be able to allow uh, corporations and individuals to protect uh, their data wherever it travels. So what we do is we allow, uh, if you're an individual or an organization, to be able to um, uh, encrypt your data and then dynamically even control who can get access to that data and what they can indeed do to that data, no matter where it is. So as you guys pointed out, that we live in a world now without digital borders and enterprises with these increasingly uh, disintegrating perimeters. And so uh, the whole notion and fundamentals of Vera is that uh, your data is going to travel and it's going it's to go anywhere. So if we can allow you to uh, control who can get access to it, what they can do to it, and then also give you deep level of audit capabilities around uh, um, chain of custody uh, and even what's going on to your data and control what they, people can do to it in real time, and then revoke those rights having consumer data. The uh, amount of powerful capability in the light of, uh, of security and privacy uh, that are so on the forefront of everyone's mind right now. That's exactly what we do.
0: Sure. So, Ajay, are CMOs that are well versed in GDPR coming to you concerned about the fact that, given the the percentage of click-through rates, if you're looking for consent and a person doesn't respond, that doesn't mean you're d- defaulting to yes, it's defaulting to no. So will, are they concerned that GDPR will over time significantly shrink their marketing's database in terms of customer contact info and what they need to do to, you know, add real value so that folks are opting into, uh, you know, getting those emails and invitations and so on and so forth because my sense as a former cmo is if you're not compliant and you're not thinking at gdpr gdpr is not just a check-off conformance but a whole new way of earning your customers trust and business you're going to see your marketing database go like this over time is that a fair assessment is are you go ahead yeah I think, that's a, I think that's a
3: very fair assessment i think one of the general uh, fundamental provisions of um, of the GDPR is this whole notion that uh, individuals own the way to their data, and d- the default is to always er on the side of more protections as opposed to less. so even um, you know even if um, in the in the past if someone said, okay, look at, they have to like opt out of being part of that, the uh, default now is that they you know the corporation or the the company that has access to the data have to do the most protective assertion around that data as opposed to the most open. So it is a very big concern. Right now, it's related to uh, any EU citizen data that there is, um, but as this extends beyond uh, into the uh, in other uh, countries and other nationalities, this is going to become a much uh, you know, bigger situation. What are the default configurations that are allowed in order for uh, you, can, you can turn to, the to do with that data, it's, it's a big issue. And I think the problem is that, um, you know, you started out by saying for, for CMOs that are in the middle of JPR. I think the biggest problem is that people are still very far
0: into
1: the So
0: I think we lost Ajay for a bit. We lost
1: Ajay for a bit, but, uh, you know, and that's oh, point. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no problem. We got, we got you back on voice. Yes. You know, Sorry about
0: that. Sorry about that.
1: No, no. And, and you know what? I mean, you, you raise a really good point, right? I mean, it's, th- this is shifting, but I want to add to Vala's question. And, you know, is it just the CMO or are you getting CFOs and legal officers calling you too now as well?
3: Hmm. Yeah. I, in fact, I would say that it's, it's probably, it's primarily coming from the people that, so here, here's the interesting thing. Um, uh, the, the in the US, and when I learned this very quickly, versus in the EU, the, U, the US has a notion of talking about everything from the concept or from the side of um, uh, a security standpoint. We take a security angle. In the EU, they take a privacy angle to a lot of these pieces, right? And so, uh, what people are waking up to now is that in the US, we might have like a chief information security officer or chief security officer, yeah. uh, in the EU, have a chief privacy officers. So we're getting a lot of questions from four levels of organizations. Uh, We're getting a lot of questions from this traditional security side of the equation, actually a lot more than from what we're getting from the marketing piece as well. Because people are trying to figure out uh, what is this other flip side of security that they call privacy? What do they have to have in place? And one of the provisions of the the GDPR is a DPO, uh, a, a, a department of privacy or a, a director of privacy officer within your organization. And this is something that is gonna be required you know, of everyone. So it's, uh, it's you get, we're getting questions from the board, we're getting questions from traditional IT and security, as well as other functions within the organization.
1: Now that, that is definitely huge. And, and when we take this back to the uh, testimony from uh, uh, Zuckerberg and in terms of like what those protections are, what are your recommendations? Like what, what should be there at a minimum um, in terms of what co- companies should be thinking about,
3: right? So I think um, it really, when you look at it, I, what, what's going on is that there are really three, um, you know, components. It just as there is a lot of different initiatives, there is a, you know, a people component, a process, and a uh, technology, you know, component to this. And so uh, the, the first thing is to do is there's going to be a huge educational component for this. In terms of uh, the first step, is to be able to be able to spend. Uh, you know, time and effort and understanding what are the processes and what are the the directorates that you have to put in place from a people and process perspective, Um, analyzing then um, and looking and working with organizations that actually have dissected the 99 articles that are there, uh, and then trying to map that to the processes that you have in place, how you have to augment.
1: You know, as I think he's saying, we got to augment those processes at a people level.
0: God, we lost voice.
1: Yeah, we, lost, we lost some voice yeah. there, Ajay, uh, but we'll pick, pick it up from there uh, on the process side.
0: God, we have some bad feet, apologize. So, wait, if I'm not mistaken, this is like a 54,000 word policy. And are companies, at a minimum, updating their policies on their website as a, as a low hanging fruit or at least an important step? before May 25, where they can demonstrate that there's progress towards compliance? I don't Um,
1: think so, but I think Ajay's back and we can kind of pick it up from the process side of what they need to do. We heard a little bit about the processes and how they need to augment them, Ajay?
0: Yeah,
3: hey, sorry, so much for the uh, the Caltech Wi-Fi. (laughs) <laughs> I don't work at a major university. So I I I apologize for that. No, yeah, So what we, I was saying is we assume that, the consumption is yeah.
1: higher over there than lower. So yeah. even if the band was bigger, uh, you don't right. get any advantage.
3: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I know. So so I'm sorry saying on the, and if if I leave again I'll I'll dial in, but uh, the um from the process standpoint, uh organizations really do need to have to understand what they have to put in place for, from the, the, the DPO um, office, officer perspective, as well as the processes to be able to govern uh, anything from the right of, of, of knowing what's going on with the data, the right of, um, uh, of, of also uh, before you actually spend a dollar on different pieces of technology um, effectively. So working with people uh, that have kind of First important step before trying to go and find a technology solution, which is a lot of what people try to go to and do. And the, the other thing to really notice is that that we make clear to people that anyone coming to you that says that they have a silver bullet to solve the problem is uh, is there. There's no silver bullet. There's not a single technology to be able to do this. Um, there is are 99 articles, as you mentioned, there's 54. Uh, whatever thousands of pages that are out there for, or words, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> it's like and uh, my um, and uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no so we got to be able, we, we, yeah, we, we have to. Um, I think that anyone says that there's a silver bullet, they're, they're wrong. It's going to be a question of changing how you notify people, of the processes in place, um, the individuals that you have to put from a compliance perspective. And then one step of this is actually the um, uh, one step of, the, of this is then the technology.
0: Yeah, there's four elements, if I'm not mistaken. So requirements for personal information to be anonymized and encrypted, and my guess is technical debt is the probably the biggest barrier for that first step, need to protect against unauthorized access to user data, and then data protection by design and data protection by default. These are essentially the four you know, macro categories that companies need to plan for? That's right. And
3: then on top of it, the governance on top of that, the yes. governance that you have to put in place with the DPO, that, that's precisely correct.
1: Okay. No, but it sounds like, Ajay, like we're, we're basically at the early stages, kind of like when we were with SOX, right? People thinking they can do it manually, right? People were bringing in, like experts outside to help them figure out what's going on. And, and it sounds like what you've got is, is the ability to let them scale out in a software-based solution. Is that, is that where you are?
3: That's right. I mean, in terms of the encryption, the ability for the, the right to know the chain of cost, the information, from a software standpoint, we are working very extensively with companies that are trying to implement those portions of uh, of the GDPR from a technology standpoint. So we fill um, a you know a, a whole bunch of those different gaps. But uh, you know, is a I would I would never compl- uh, I would never um, uh, kind of put forth that we are we are a silver bullet to all the different pieces. But we 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 do allow for a. a, a of mapping to a lot of the different articles, the different 99 articles that there are from uh, a GDPR perspective.
0: Ajay, as you watched uh, TV this week, and uh, you know, most of us now have maybe a stronger understanding of impact of data and technology to not just business, but society as a whole. What are some of the takeaways? What are some advice as a CEO that you're giving other CEOs in terms of preparing for a whole new world that demands radical transparency, and accountability.
3: Yeah, no, so I think you said it right there. This whole notion of radical transparency is, uh, is, is paramount. Um, the other thing that I like, uh, especially within the US, that was like a light bulb moment for me in spending time in, in the EU, is you have to remember that the flip side to security, which you spent so, which companies spend so much time at the um, board level and other levels, um, you know, talking about here in the U.S., we must start talking about privacy in the, in the same way. Uh, there was one really telling moment for me that kind of uh, was a seminal moment in the testimony this week is when one of the senators asked, uh, um, there's two, two, two different moments. One of them was in which one uh, one senator asked Mark Zuckerberg is saying, well, so put it to me simply, uh, do you own the data or do I own the data? Um, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg said, uh, "Well, you own the data." And he goes, "Well, the center says, Well, you make fifty billion dollars uh, a year or whatever in revenue, and I don't make a penny, so to me, it seems like you own the data, <laughs> right and um, the the notion there is that uh, you know you have these arcane like uh user agreements, terms of service, things like that. And they find the face of this whole notion of radical transparency and of privacy. So everything that a company does looks to protect itself. And you've got to actually now, in order to get the confidence of the consumer or the user, you have to now look at it from their perspective and look at it from a perspective of privacy and not just security. Uh, and, and that's a fundamental shift that I think if, you, if people can make in their mind, they will model the processes, hire the right people, and invoke and, and the right technologies, uh, to be able to achieve those ends.
1: Yeah, no, this is, this is something that's going to come to bear. I mean, a lot of us are really advocating for uh, data privacy to eventually be a human right. Uh, I think this is something that's, that's going to pop up. There's 30 human rights in the UN. And the question is, you know, will we be able to take back our data and, and monetize our data? right? The stuff that, that's about us, or, or does that get monetized by large companies and entities and governments? Uh, and so I think that is going to be one of the biggest conversations we'll have over the next decade. So this is, this well, is pretty huge. Yeah,
3: that's right. One thing I'll just add to that is, and one, one of the analogies I use is that everyone, you know, everyone has a physical existence, um, and uh, now everyone has a digital existence, and there's going to be, uh, you know, every single piece of notion is out there, uh, um, and information is out there it 's like uh you know you wouldn't give the government or a company the keys to your apartment in Manhattan and allow them to rubbish around all your data um and because there's rights that protect you against people having unauthorized access to to your info, you know physical information and it 's no different to providing a you know universal key to your your digital life or digital information, and there needs to be uh, a, this kind of uh uh, rights that are invoked and are, are clearly stated and understood. I
1: completely agree with you. Well, hey, I want to switch gears. You are like a serial entrepreneur, like massively. <laughs> so let's talk <laughs> about your experiences, like over the last uh, three, like three to four startups that you've been in, like what's changed in the startup environment? Is it easier? Is it harder? You know, what, what, what parts do you see that, that have you know shifted the landscape?
3: Yeah, so um, it's funny. Being a serial entrepreneur means is that uh, uh, when you start out as an entrepreneur, you, one of the things you realize is you become an entrepreneur because uh, you're perpetually unemployable. <laughs> it's very difficult <laughs> to go and start working for someone else, so you end that's up awesome. having to start your own companies. So that's a, that's a very true reality from that standpoint. But no, really, there have several things that have changed. Um, for the good and uh, and for the, and I think uh, somewhat, some of it's to the negative. Well, number one, I think what's changed in the last 15, 20 years is, first of all, the ability to start up um, and build technologies uh, and uh, new ideas has become dramatically easier with, uh, with the cloud technologies that are available. I mean, you can literally, you know, sign up with AWS and have a whole slew of services right at your fingertips to build, you know, uh, applications. Uh, off the platform back in the day, you had to pretty much start almost everything from scratch, and there was a huge investment in not only capital equipment but in software and platform technology that you had to be able to do. And the time to be able to get to value was uh, was dramatically you know larger. Um, that's you know definitely one of one of, the, uh, one of the positives. There's a there's a lot of uh, talent that's gone now into you um, know you know into uh, startups and in technology as well, and so there's a there's a lot of talent available. On the flip side. Uh, that talents become uh, very expensive, and when you have guys uh, in my neck of the woods uh, like Palo uh, Alto, and you're competing with Facebook and uh, Uber and Twitter and uh, and Google, they have almost unlimited capacity in terms of being able to spend on acquiring resources, both physical and uh, and human, um, to be able to do that. And uh, you know, gone are the days in which um, a lot of engineers work straight for uh, stock. Uh, they want stock. They want the dollars, and they want the um, the titles and they want the you know the bike shop inside uh, your your you know uh, alongside of their um, uh, their their, uh, their barista. So I mean, the barista there's the a sushi. lot more and the
1: sushi and the sushi. That's
3: right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so that is uh, that that it's become you know talent acquisition is is, is very very difficult. Um, you know a, 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 an A round or a B round. Um, you know back in the day again. Uh, you, you know, a, a ten million dollar round or a five million dollar round would be a pretty healthy A round back, uh, you know, 15 years ago. Now, you know, a lot of people are calling that a seed to get going because of the, primarily because of uh, a personnel acquisition. So, um, things from a technology standpoint have become a lot easier to start up. Things from a, a personnel um, and and just scaling have become a lot more expensive. And um, and unlike 2000 and so. Uh, where when we were in the dot com bubble or, or, or whatever, uh, it, it didn't take a lot to get funded. And now um, you'll see, even though the the market is rich with dollars and capital to startup companies, um, companies are becoming uh, VCs are becoming far more discerning as to whom they put their dollars to work at. And so, even though you see a lot of capital. Um, the reason why there's some, you know, crazy valuations are out there is because all that capital tends to be going after the same deals, and so these valuations become exceedingly large for companies that get funded. Um, so uh, there's a flip side to what's been happening, um, you know, uh, both good and bad in the in the
1: venture and startup world in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Would you say that the VCs are more discerning or they're more risk averse? And that's why they're ganging up on less bets. Because in the past they would bet on like twenty, thirty companies. It feels like they're all yeah, kind of like yeah. coalescing on like three because they're afraid that they're they didn't hedge yeah, right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my view is that um uh VCs are actually some of the most risk-averse people uh, yes. and in a lot of ways. And that's why you you see the idea of these serial entrepreneurs. Um, you know, the idea that uh one, you know, one person um, you know, over and over again is uh, just has something over, you know, new talent coming in. It's actually, I think that's, that's not true. I think the idea is, is that there's this whole notion that uh, past performance is a p- good predictor of, of future performance. And so um, one of the reasons why you have serial entrepreneurs is because um, VCs try to put their money in the yeah. most risk-averse way they can. And individuals and management teams are, are, are the number one area of risk that you'll have in any, any startup. So I think that um, the whole job of a VC is to figure out how to um, uh, minimize risk um, as as much as possible um, from from that standpoint, and that that's why the money will follow a lot of the uh, the, in, uh, the different entrepreneurs are there. So I think um, they uh, a lot of the money that that's there will are also uh, you know when you see a good deal and you see and you you mark down the risk areas, that's where the money will will then flow, and that's why you'll see uh, more concentration of money into a certain smaller cohort of companies than you would have um, 15 years ago. The other notion is, is that there used to be this spray and pray mentality that was out there because it was cheaper to start companies. So if you could put 50 to $250,000 of work um, across, you know, 30 companies, and, there's, and then you realize that out of those 30, 28 of them are going to die and you didn't spend a lot of capital, um, you know, the, the, ability to, um, uh, the ability to do that now has is, um, is, uh, is dried up. Uh, no, 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 no. That's so really we, the ICO
1: market, yeah, Ajay. Yeah, yeah. Ajay, yeah, that's the yeah, ICO exactly, blockchain market. <laughs> yeah, that's
3: <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. Yeah. We're yeah, talking
1: yeah. about real enterprise yeah. companies now. But hey, yeah, we are yeah. out of time. We are here with Ajay Aurora, CEO and co-founder of Vera. More importantly, Siri Entrepreneur. Ajay Aurora is here live at you can follow him at Ajay Aurora at um, and he's live here at Caltech. So, hey, thanks for making the call and uh, sharing with us your insights.
3: Thank you, Roger. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. You were terrific. Right, see ya.
1: Welcome to the alumni.
0: Absolutely. Another, another exceptional CEO that we could talk to for hours. Um, and, and I love the, yeah, thanks for pivoting, Ray. I think it was important to get, anytime we have successful startup CEOs on the show, I think it's important to get their insights in terms of how they're winning. and and advice to other entrepreneurs and speaking of winning this is our you know cleanup hitter spot where we have our first ballot hall of fame disrupt tv inductee coming back on our show (laughs) i got to come up with a different analogy but uh that's that resonates the other side of the pond but uh we have steve wilson who's vice president uh, and principal analyst at constellation research focusing on digital identity and privacy so a great anchor to this show. Um, His advisory service to CIOs, CISOs, CPOs, and IT architects includes security practice benchmarking, privacy engineering, and privacy impact assessment, which is all about what we were talking about with our first two guests. Steve has worked in the ICT innovation research development and analysis area for over 25 years. He's a wonderful follow on Twitter, at Steve, S-T-E-V-E, underscore, lockstep. L-O-C-K-S-T-E-P. Welcome back, Steve. On a quiet week when it comes to regulations, privacy, and, and government. <laughs> no, the- not,
4: much, not much going on, right?
0: Not much going on unless you were watching the news last night. But but we'll uh we'll let Ray start with the questions.
4: <laughs> My football team won. That was the main thing. <laughs> <All
0: right. laughs> Fantastic. Uh, the Fantastic. swans.
1: Here's to the swans. Um hey, so. So you're watching all this, right? And as an analyst, you know, as an expert in the field, right? What, what are these big Privacy Shield updates we should worry about? Let's start with that one.
4: Wow, Privacy Shield. Okay. Um, it'll take a minute to explain. Um, about two years ago, there was a big, big case in European um, courts about whether or not data being transferred about European citizens into the United States was um, still compliant with European regulations. This is before GDPR. Um, I think people need to remember that GDPR is a new expression of privacy laws or clarification of privacy laws that have been around for 30 or 40 years. And America has had the luxury of ignoring this stuff because there was a special deal done between the Federal Trade Commission and the EU called the safe harbour. Now, two years ago, long story short, the safe harbour was found to be um, basically invalid. It was thrown out. The FTC rushed, um, really rushed, to put something together called the Privacy Shield. And guess what? That has just been overturned as well yesterday. What? Look, overturned yes. so far as, uh, an important case was brought against Facebook in Ireland because Ireland is where the European headquarters are. What happened yesterday was that the Irish court upheld a finding that the, that the Privacy Shield was not adequate. Now, um, Facebook has been given one week uh, no, they've been given until April 30. So what's that? Um, two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Um, now, so Facebook,
0: Facebook staff is going to get back to everyone on
4: that. So They'll, they'll move quickly. Um, the next important step is that the European Court of Justice, which is essentially the Supreme Court for all of Europe, uh, is, is being asked to make a final determination. And all of the smart money is on the ECJ, European Court of Justice, following the Irish Court. And this basically means that they're going to find, at the same time as GDPR comes along, they're going to find that all of these special deals that have been done to, to produce exceptions for American business are invalid. And, um, you know, the, the reality has been building for years now that international privacy law is something that Americans need to embrace. And uh, it, it's another forcing function.
0: As big as GDPR or bigger?
4: Um, it's actually off to the side a little bit of GDPR because this has got to do with surveillance and the Patriot Act and the special requirements that the US government puts on American businesses to, um, to make data available for surveillance. So this is sort of the dark side of privacy, I guess. And it's really where national security interests collide with human rights. And uh, you know we've seen that movie many times before. And I'm not saying that that's gonna be simple. But I am saying that GDPR is the bedrock of all of this and, and if it's necessary but perhaps not sufficient. Um, American companies need to start to understand the international standards and norms which say, you know, for God's sake, be restrained. If you've got data about people, tell them that you've got the data. Um, don't repurpose data for purposes that, that people have not consented to. Get rid of data when you're finished with it. And uh, it's not just Europe. I mean, look at all the breaches that we've had uh, look at the officer personnel, look at um, experience, uh, Equifax, uh, look at Target. Um, yeah. Data is toxic waste, as, as people like David Birch like to say. And um, it's about time that we started really you know, treating it seriously. Uh, it's that simple.
1: Wow, this is a big deal. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. We haven't been in the US uh, serious about that or had to be serious about that if you look at it from um, all, all those angles. So, but when you think about, when you think about this, you know, from, from, the, from not just like what companies need to do on a privacy front, but just from, you know, what types of human rights are out there? What's your stance? Like what's, what's important?
4: Look, Ray, I think that um, you make a rare point in Silicon Valley that privacy is a human right. Um, I'm really optimistic about this. I, I draw a parallel between the data economy, which is now in its absolute infancy, to what happened with crude oil and, and petrochemicals, um, hmm. what, 50 years ago? So that crude oil, data is crude oil, that analogy's been around for a while. Some people think it's a bit hackneyed. I really like it because data is like this raw material that sits underneath almost everything that happens in the economy now, just like crude oil does. And so data mining supports all these weird and wonderful supply chains where people take data, they evaluate it, they refine it, they um, produce information products, just like the petrochemical industry. Now, what happened in the oil rush was that people that were that were growing filthy rich on the back of oil were driving into people's properties. They were mowing down fences. They were sinking oil wells. Wow, have you seen what the California beaches looked like 100 years ago? Oh, God. Santa Monica, the incredible um, just craziness. And society eventually said, hey, this isn't right. Let's rebalance. Um, You saw an enormous amount of um, social norms, social protests, regulations, laws, and standards emerge to actually make the petrochemical industry orderly, and look where we are here today. So I think, in fact, every industrial revolution is, is about the tech to begin with, like data mining and analytics and all that great stuff that we've heard from the guests. But what happens then is a real um, social examination of what standards are required to make this stuff um, fair and equitable. And I think the next 10 years of the internet revolution is going to be about uh, norms and standards that protect data, period. Um, We don't need to think about privacy. We don't need to say that it's innovation versus human rights. This is a win-win for everybody. We can make the data economy orderly. And I think that privacy is just the sort of tip of that iceberg of making it orderly and fair and um, equitable.
0: Steve, you have said, and I think this may actually be tweetable about GDPR. You said 50% of GDPR is pretty simple. Don't collect personal information beyond what you need tell people what you know about them, don't exploit knowledge you have, don't repurpose personal information, and get rid of data when you don't need it anymore. And you said, these are all good rules for all data. Is that a, I mean, that, that, if, so if that's the 50, what's the other 50% about? Is it about consent? Is it about, you know, can, can, you, share, can you simplify the other half as beautifully as what you've done with the first half? <laughs> <laughs>
4: um. What we need is a lawyer on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, in a, in a show like this, it's really important that, that we don't get cornered into giving legal advice because that's not what translation sure. does. Sure. Um, the legal obligations of GDPR are not to be trifled with. Um, there are some important timing um, obligations. Uh, you have 72 hours to notify stakeholders within... Um, so the process
0: law. Law. Yeah. Okay.
4: Um, there are requirements on your privacy policy. So, um, for example, the, the famous 5,000-word Facebook privacy policy, uh, to be compliant with GDPR, it needs to be redrafted, and you need to get your lawyers to do that. Um, I'd like to tell that 50-50 story because it's like anything. I mean, if you run an automotive industry, um, you, you run Tesla, um, the surface of your business is all about customer experience and innovation and competition, and fantastic tech and great cars. But, of course, 50% of Tesla's business you never hear about because they have to comply with safety standards and airbags and emissions, and it's complicated. Um, But it's, you know, the fact of doing business in a complicated environment like data or like picture chemicals or like automotive. Um, So I'd like to be really optimistic. I'd like to say that 50% of GDPR is, you know, not just common sense, but 50% of it is about being orderly and about having some um, structure and some safety around what we do with this precious raw material. And to that extent, um, 50% of it is pretty straightforward. You should be restrained. Um, Look at what happened with Zuckerberg in the the Senate testimony. Um, Almost everything that he was struggling with was around transparency. So um, is it really fair that people should should click on yes as if they've read 5,000 words? A lot of the senators were really eloquent about the fact that you couldn't (laughs) possibly understand what you're signing up for, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, A lot of Zuckerberg's problems are also the fact that he opened up APIs without a lot of government and he allowed a whole lot of third parties that we know nothing about to access data about Facebook members behind their backs. And um, all of those, you know, it's a total lack of restraint. Um, Facebook... They make $50 billion out of data which they claim that other people own. Uh, So all of that stuff comes back to GDPR insofar as the behaviour of of some corporates is no longer reasonable. And I think this pendulum is swinging from, you know, 15 years ago, Google, oh, my God, look what you could do for free. (laughs) Look at Facebook, incredible. That pendulum has now swung back to, to like, who's really winning in this so-called free economy? the richest people in the world are winning and people are left scratching their heads like, my God, you know, you're ripping me off, you're exploiting my data, and you're losing it. Um, so that pendulum's coming back to the middle. And it, it would come back to the middle without GDPR. It's just that GDPR is giving it a great big push. saying, come on, let's be reasonable, folks. Yeah.
1: Wow. So, so when we think about this and, and, and the future of where we're going with you know, not, not just data, data privacy, you know, what's, how, do, how do organizations interact and still get consent? Like, what, what are the rules? What are the guidelines behind that?
0: Well,
4: you know, I, I think that consent has been set up to fail by the data companies. It's not that hard. Um, if my business model is to um, trace what you're doing and to produce timelines about what you do day to day and what you like and who you interact with. And my business model is to take that behavioural analytics and to monetize it and to provide signals to advertisers and to allow advertisers to hit you, your, your members, according to your preferences. Um, tell people what you're doing. It's not hard. I just put it into words in one sentence. Um, that should be a headline at the front of the Facebook privacy policy. We um, watch what you do. We use analytics to not just align what you tell us, but what we figure out behind your back what you like, what your habits are, what your lifestyle is, and we serve up advertising. If that's your business model, tell people and say, are you cool with that? Yep. Um, no. So, um, you know, consent is not that difficult. If you want to use data, explain why and, um, and get people to understand it. Um, you know, beyond that, and again, better get, you know, better get a lawyer son better get a real good one. Um, (laughs) It's not always required to get consent. The funny thing about GDPR is that um, it it is actually, um, um, I was gonna say business friendly, that's not quite right, but um, it's business sophisticated. GDPR knows um, about data businesses and it knows that, that, that it is legitimate to take information and to reuse it for other purposes, as long as it's reasonable. And so, in fact, you don't need to get consent for every single thing under GDPR. It it allows for for big businesses. If if, if you're a a tilco and you've got a customer call record and um, there's been a fault in the the system and you're trying to communicate to another um, tilco, the data doesn't need to be siloed. If it's reasonable to be sharing call data with another tilco in order to debug a system, GDPR doesn't prevent that sort of thing. Um, and you, when you pull up the call centre and you say, oh, you know, I want to um, check my records, and they say, we can't tell you about that because of privacy, there's a famous um, excuse in privacy circles. It's called botpa, Blame it on the Privacy Act. <laughs> and, uh, that's, you know, GDPR is, is not about secrecy. It's not about stopping people doing this. It's about being reasonable.
0: Steve, a tactical question and my final question. Do you have a sense of how... Uh, the GDPR will be applied in, in scenarios of business to business to consumer. So, you know, let's say Constellation has an agreement with a with a software vendor. Um, are all the analysts at Constellation need to give consent to the end vendor? Or as long as there's an agreement between Constellation and an end company, the employees of Constellation have, uh, are, you know, are, 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 are have yeah. have given consent through the organization. I don't know if that's yeah. clear. I don't, um,
4: um, no, that's a great question, Vala, and it, and it goes to like, how reasonable businesses operate and how the law um, is, is cool with that. I think it would be assumed that a company like Constellation has got um, employment agreements in place so that we don't just have a team of people that are going around doing their own thing. We've got employment agreements. We've got codes of practice. Um, and so therefore, with that structure, you know, every organisation is like a bit of a black box and within that organisation, one assumes that it's orderly and that there's accountability, and you know Ray knows what's going on because he's the boss. You know, and that's the same with everything: occupational health and safety, um, financial responsibility. Everything assumes in corporate law that businesses control their people, and if you are good at that, then it means that everybody represents the organisation. So, you okay. know, if something is secret to or if something is confidential to Constellation, then of course everybody within Constellation um, has access to that data. And um, you know, privacy law is framed around that sort of principle.
1: Wow, hey, we are, we are here with you know, Steve Wilson talking Deep on GDPR privacy. You can catch a lot of his research that's coming out on this area. Um, this is definitely one of the hot topics for 2018. Uh, we're catching it all there. You can follow Steve at Steve underscore lockstep. He's our vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research. Steve, thanks for being on so early in the day at Sydney, and especially on a weekend. And uh, thanks for being on Disrupt TV. Back I wouldn't you. miss it, right? Thanks, Valor. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Um, oh, wow. The biggest brains on GDPR privacy all in one episode. This is episode 102. Who do we have for episode 103, Vala?
0: Uh, it, it, by the way, an amazing uh, educational session for me, so I appreciate that. Episode 103 next week. Uh, we have, an, uh, you know, just an Emmy Award winner. Offer. Oh,
1: that again, yes. Oh, we've
0: got about <laughs> 3 million on, Ted, uh, on, 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 on TEDx uh, video. We have Kari Anderson. Uh, Again, speaker, Emmy Award winner, author, and she's going to come back and really uh, inspire us, as she always does. We have Bruce Cryer, another executive coach, keynote performer, mentor, and founder of Renaissance Human. So we have Bruce joining us as well. And then one of our favorite guests, Heather Clancy, editorial director of Green Biz. And she's going to talk about sustainability and, and green energy and renewable energy and what businesses are doing to take advantage of emerging technology, too you know, help uh, the environment and and help, help, uh, you know, help sustainability initiatives. So three uh, extraordinary guests uh, next Friday. Ray, closing remarks.
1: You know, this has been a crazy week thinking about where Zuckerberg is, where privacy is. I'm just excited for the man who said privacy is dead. Privacy is now back. And I'm real excited for everybody because this is one of those topics that I thought was dead. And we're, we're, we're now back talking about it. So some great experts there. And uh, great seeing you, Val, as well at the CRM Evolution Conference. And uh, it's it's been an exciting week. So.
0: Thank you, Ray, and uh, we'll uh, see you next Friday. If it's Friday, it's uh, the Schrock TV. Thanks, everyone, for watching. We'll see you next Friday at 11 Pacific to Eastern. Thank you, everyone.